Welcome to the Cornerstone Church Podcast. We are glad you are taking advantage of this resource. If you would like to find out more information about our church or connect with us, go to cornerstonebv.org. You can also check us out on our Facebook page, at CornerstoneBV. We hope that the message today impacts your life and draws you closer in your walk with Christ. Good morning, everybody. Um, I mentioned this last night, so I'm going to mention it this morning. I, I really enjoy this song because I enjoy the history of the background of that. John Newton wrote uh, most of that song that we saw, um, Amazing Grace. And he wrote it almost as an autobiographical um, his own testimony of how he'd come to faith. However, he, was, he had a poet, an English poet, who was living with him at the time called William Cooper, and, and Cooper was just given to terrible bouts of depression. In fact, he wrote the hymn, or the, 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 the lyrics, um, uh, the mysterious, uh, God's Mysterious Ways or something like that. You probably know it. Um, and he, so, so Newton wrote that song to alleviate Cooper's depression when he was living with him at the time. Just to, just to say, songs can heal us. If we open ourselves up to God, the Spirit of God can heal us through music. Isn't that amazing? Amazing grace. Okay, enough said. All right, last week, Pastor Jamie introduced a short series that we're going to look at. It's called Word, and it's it's all about how we are going to make disciples here at the church. So the first is uh, worship, outreach, relationships, discipleship. And this is really the way that we want to fulfill the Great Commission. So today, my responsibility is to talk about discipleship. So uh, we're getting things out of order, but that's okay. We can live with it, right? Uh, we're going to look at a number of scriptures. We're not going to, I'm not going to tell you, you know, right away, but I just want to give you an idea of how, how I experienced, my wife and I experienced discipleship when we were first converts. First of all, when I heard the word disciple, I had no idea what that meant, none whatsoever. But I heard everybody talking about how they were into discipleship. So I figured this was a good thing. We better get into discipleship. The problem was we didn't know how. Well, I remember when discipleship got very serious in our house. Uh, I went to church one morning. Nita stayed home. She was, she was ill with the flu. And, I, and the sermon was about tithing, you know, giving away your money to the church. I'd never heard of such a thing. I didn't even know what the word tithing meant until the end of the sermon. And then I, I just went, 10%, are you kidding me? 10% of our combined income would be $40 a week. We can't possibly afford that. So I'm driving home and I'm thinking, how am I going to explain this to Nita? That this is, you know, if we're into discipleship, this is what disciples do. And so I went home. She was asleep. She, she, uh, she woke up. She said, well, tell me about church. What was the sermon about? I told her. And I said, you know, we really can't afford to do this. We'll throw some money in every now and then. You know, that's what I saw us doing back when I was a kid, going to Catholic church and all that. We'll, we'll do that. And she said, well, if that's what God says we're supposed to do, that's what we're going to do. And she rolled over and went back to sleep. Great. All right, so. The next week, I went to church, and I heard that if you're into discipleship, you must join a small group. So he said, okay, we'll look for a small group. We found a small group, went to the group. They were studying um, Francis Schaeffer's movie, How Should We Then Live? I don't know if you know who Francis Schaeffer is, but if you do, great. If you don't, he was a brilliant philosopher, a brilliant theologian, and a brilliant Presbyterian minister, and I was none of those things. All this stuff went right over my head. 
So, but we stayed. We endured because this is what disciples do. So the next week we go to church and we hear that disciples serve. And they made a pitch to serve in the youth ministry, so I, we signed up for the youth ministry. That lasted all of two weeks. And then we found out there was a drama ministry and we quietly shifted over to our service to that. The, the point of all of this is to say that how, is it, how confusing can it be for new believers to figure out how to follow Jesus in an orderly way. This was sort of this patchwork kind of discipleship, and I don't think that that works very well. And so we're going to look at that subject this morning, discipleship, and take a very careful look at how Jesus discipled his 12 disciples because, of, because he did a very good job. And so we can pattern our work after that. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have called us to be disciples. You've brought us into your kingdom. You've made us your children. And most of all, you made us followers of your son. So we pray that you will help us to um, have the ears of a disciple, ready disciples, who will receive what you have to say to this morning and, and that you will form in us the very image of Jesus. In your name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Before his ascension, Jesus gave instructions to the church about the mission of the church, and every gospel-centered church has this mission. It's Matthew 28, 18, and it says, Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and earth, and therefore go, actually more literally, as you are going, in other words, he's going about your life, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these disciples to obey all the commands I have given you, and be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And I think, I think you know, we take great comfort out of the fact that Jesus is with us always, but I think he wants to underscore he's with us in our efforts to make disciples too. We shouldn't forget that. So all gospel-centered churches exist with this same purpose, to obey Jesus, by making disciples who obey Jesus. And in Jesus' mind, if we're reading this right, in his mind, discipleship is not just one aspect of what the church does. It is what the church does. It's central to what the church does. And so um, that means um, from the worship service to the tech team to the nursery, even, even to the refreshments that are served between the services, they all must align with this purpose of making disciples. So... Let's begin with a definition of discipleship. Discipleship is the process of transforming unbelievers into worshipers of God the Father who mature as followers of Jesus Christ, identifying with him in every way under the transformative power of the Holy Spirit. Let me read it again. Discipleship is the process of transforming unbelievers into worshipers of God the Father who mature as followers of Jesus Christ, identifying with him in every way, under the transformative power of the Holy Spirit. That's as much to say that discipleship is a matter of the Trinity's work with us. Now, the outcome of this process is always 
transformation. And that is that the life of a disciple conforms to the life of Christ. So the goal of discipleship is to believe everything Jesus believed, live like Jesus lived, love the way that he loved, serve the way that he served, and if, if he's calling us, then also to lead the way that he led. Now, you, you've probably heard the phrase spiritual formation. How many of you have ever heard of that phrase or read it anywhere? Just a few of you. Well, you may stumble into it even more now. It's, 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 a, it's a pretty hot topic in the church. But I want to make a distinction between discipleship and spiritual formation. I don't believe they're exactly the same thing, but they're certainly not unconnected. Spiritual formation is about growing the qualities of Christ that make us like him. And discipleship is the process by which that happens. That's the only distinction that I would make here. Paul said to the uh, Galatian church, for example, um, he, he said, I am laboring until Christ is formed in you. And I think that's what he meant by tr spiritual formation. So when it comes to figuring out the best methods for disciple making, we can't do any better than the way Jesus did it. I mean, he is the excellent um, the ultimate disciple maker. So if we can see what he's done to train his 12 men before he, he released them into the world as apostles, then we can evaluate our own progress in growth as well as learn how to make disciples of other people. Now, it took Jesus for uh, three years, about three years, to get his disciples ready to turn the world upside down, which uh, we, we see in the book of Acts. And he transformed the lives of these 12 men in a four-strategy, a four-phase strategy. First, he started with their calling or recruiting them. Secondly, he taught them. That took up most of the time of his discipleship with them. Third... Uh, there was a critical point in their training when he equipped them for ministry. And then fourth, before he sent them out, he said, remain in me, endure to the end. So we're going to look at all four of those phases, see what Jesus was doing in them, try and give them a brief definition, and then at the end of the sermon, uh, show you ways that we at Cornerstone are trying to accomplish that very thing when it comes to making disciples. So the first step is calling, and we see Jesus here in uh, John 1, 35 to 39, recruiting his disciples. So let's look at that passage. Verse 35 says, the next day again, now keep that in mind because of the backstory here, but the next day again, John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by, and he said, behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned, and he saw them following, and he said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come, and you'll see. And so they came, and they saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, uh, for it was about the tenth hour. Now, notice where Jesus is doing his recruiting of disciples. It's not in the temple. It's out in the marketplace, out where the harvest fields are. Jesus doesn't look for his recruits in religious places. He looks for his recruits in the marketplaces where, where we're just living our daily lives, you know. We, we, uh, uh, in, the, in his day, it was fishing and trading and, and in Matthew's case, collecting taxes. Um, so we can see here from this that discipleship actually begins before conversion. It's sort of a come and taste, come and, come and see, taste and see that the Lord is good kind of invitation. Now, 
Jesus' first two disciples that, we are, that are mentioned here were recruited from John the Baptist's disciples. Now, here's the backstory. The day before this took place, the exact same thing happened. Jesus, that day before, was walking toward John the Baptist, and John pointed him out and said, there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, these men knew what lambs were all, all about. They knew all of the theology. They knew, they knew that lambs had to be sacrificed in order to forgive sins in the temple. They understood all of that stuff. So when John says, there's the Lamb of God, why didn't they just rush over there and talk to him? I think they were a bit confused. Jesus is not a lamb. He's a man. And I think they had to step back for a minute and really think about this. The lamb of God. What does that mean? I think they went home that night, and they were talking about it maybe with their family, their wives, maybe among each other. And so the next day, the same thing happens, only this time they respond, right? They, they go right over to Jesus. And uh, Jesus says, what are you guys looking for? And they ask him the most profound theological question anyone can ever ask in all the world. Where do you live? What? Why ask that question? Well, it's not really a mystery, is it? I mean, if you've had children, smaller children, eight, nine, whatever, and they have their friends come over to your house for the first time, what is it that your child asks your friend to go do? Anybody? This is the interactive portion. What? Yeah. You want to come over and see my room? Right? You want to see my room? Why? 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 Because everything about them is represented in that room. The toys are there. The wall hangings are there. You know, the clothes. Everything, everything screams my child. Listen, if you invite me over to your house and you have a, a bookshelf of any substance whatsoever and, and I'm not following you into the kitchen, look for me at the bookshelf. I want to see what you're reading. I'm just, in, I'm just curious because it tells me a lot about who people are. And that's why they were asking. So they spent the whole day with Jesus. We have no idea what they said, uh, what, what the conversation was. But Jesus' goal here was to heighten their curiosity about who he was and what he came to do. And so, for example, uh, a few days later, perhaps, Jesus invites his, his few disciples to a wedding at Cana. You remember the story. Right? The, the, it's a week-long celebration. Jesus' mother comes to him at the end of the week and says, uh, <clears throat> the master of the feast, he's run out of wine. Son, you have to do something. <laughs> Wouldn't you love to be able to go to Jesus and say, fill up my cupboard, Lord? Well, I guess we do, don't we? And he, and he, says, he says very respectfully to her, this is not my time. She walks away, but evidently it was the father's time, and boom, Jesus changes the water into wine. Now, if you were there, what do you think you'd be thinking? Who is this guy? What is he about? You know, that's the number one question in the first four chapters of the book of Mark. Who is this man? Jesus is ratcheting up the curiosity of people who are following him so they would ask the question, who is he? Because he's going to answer in a way they never expected. He is the Messiah, but he wants to fill in the details of who he is. And so I would define this phase as an introduction to the worthiness of Jesus Christ. It's an invitation to discover him as 
the only fulfillment of the soul's search for something greater than itself. The goal in this particular phase, of course, is conversion. And that is that an interested unbeliever moves from doubter to disciple. That's what happened to Nathaniel. Nathaniel was met by Philip. Philip says, hey, I think we found the Messiah. Why don't you come and, and see what this guy is all about? And Nathaniel says, well, where did he come from? And, and, and Philip says, well, from Nazareth. And Nathaniel's immediate skeptical response is, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It's like saying, can anything good come out of Poughkeepsie? So he goes and he meets Jesus. They have a bit of an interchange. And immediately, Nathaniel says, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Now, that just happened because of a brief interchange. But Jesus moved him from skeptic and doubter to disciple in a brief conversation. Making disciples starts with inviting our interested, unbelieving friends and family and children to hang out with us and hear everything about Jesus. That's what I mean by an interested unbeliever, a person who, who may be shy about opening up to the claims of the gospel. They sort of have the want to, but they're a little hesitant, and they don't really know what's going on. They're afraid to ask. And like in my case, I was afraid to look stupid, like I should know these things. Often the most effective setting for an interested unbeliever is around your kitchen table, just having a conversation. You know, just, just have, having a Christian conversation with Christian friends, with interested unbelievers there, and you start talking about all kinds of things. You know what, you, you, know, you know, remember that, that stupid fumble that so-and-so made in the game last week? And, oh, by the way, did I tell you what I read this week in, in the book of Matthew? And the conversations is going all over the place. And what these interested unbelievers discover is that it's normal to be a Christian. It's normal. It's nothing terrifying. You can talk about the weather and the kids and the poopy diapers and Jesus all in the same conversation to the glory of God. And they're drawn into that. They're drawn into that. So the goal of the phase, of course, is conversion. So we need to trust a very important truth at this point. And that is, there is a hunger in every soul for something more beautiful and more attractive than anything this world has to offer. Remember that old song, Is That All There Is? Well, if that's all there is, then let's keep on dancing. No, there's so much more. And the soul was created for so much more. It says in Ecclesiastes, he's put eternity in our hearts. And that's why nothing under the sun will ever satisfy anybody. Now, the next phase for his disciples was a teaching phase. As I said, this was the longest phase of their training. And this, this uh, has two applications to it. So I, I just simply call it, come and hang out with my people. This is from Luke chapter 10, starting with verse 38. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. They were all good friends. And Jesus had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went to him and she said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve all alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about so many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen a good, the good portion which will not be taken away from her. So he's invited over to their house just to have a meal, just as a friendly gathering. 
And he sits down, and what does he do? He starts teaching. Every good rabbi, every good teacher in Jesus' day did this very thing. We see Jesus teaching to very large crowds, like the Sermon on the Mount, and to very small, intimate settings, like this in Mary's house, and everything in between. And Mary, Jesus says, has chosen something very important, and that is to listen to his teachings. Now, the goal of this particular phase, this phase two, is to become a word-saturated follower like Mary, which is one of Luke's favorite examples of discipleship. Whole sections of the four Gospels are, are given over to the teachings of Jesus. In Luke, it's like the middle sections from chapter 9 to chapter uh, 19, I believe. In Matthew, there are five whole blocks of teaching, and it goes on and on like that. And, and so it, it's stressing here that Jesus is commanding many things. Remember, he said that at Matthew. Teach them to obey the things I've commanded you. Now, I had a friend who actually went through the four Gospels and counted up all the things that Jesus commanded. He said there were 200 things. I went, oh, my. Then I hated the next question. How are you doing with them, Bob? Not so good. His name was Bob. So we're to, we, we are to train people how to do the things that Jesus commanded. There are whole sections there about spiritual disciplines like prayer, Bible reading and Bible study, learning about relationships in the kingdom of God, how we are to conduct them, how we are to be forgivers, how we're to handle money, how we're to fight against sin, how we're to encourage one another in spiritual maturity and grow deeper in the knowledge of God. Jesus' teaching, this is the second thing I think that's important, Jesus' teaching is best learned in the community of other believers, the church, the church, a unique community created for this purpose. God intends the church to be a place where groups of believers will grow together in Christ and encourage one another to grow in that character. In fact, we see this in the book of Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews. The writer says, Take care, brothers, lest there be, any of you, uh, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Let me ask you, is there somebody in your life who is willing to come to you every day and say, how are you doing grappling with that, 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 uh, that sin that just gets you down all the time? How's it going? Let me pray for you. Let me help you. That's what this author is saying. Now, there's three ways that a community of believers support each other in the practice of uh, learning how to obey Jesus and, and grow spiritually. First of all, a Christian community provides friends to encourage us. We all need friends. We might have really, really intense, close relationships with mentors, but we all just need friends. And the church is a place where we can find that kind of friendship. And God brings together people who seem to have very little in common, and he, bind, he, he, he binds them together in relationship and in the, and in the, the love of the Holy Spirit. But secondly, we need Christian community to provide friends who challenge us. We need those people who will come along, side of us. And, you know, the one thing about friends, really good friends, the one thing you know about them is that they are with you no matter what. They love you. They accept you. doesn't matter how messed up you might be or how much you might have failed. They're still there with you to encourage you. We need that in the church. And finally, 
That kind of interconnected relationship reflects the very character of God in his trinity. The foundation for interconnectedness is the three persons of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who live in an eternally loving relationship. There's no bitterness, there's no crankiness, there's no standoffishness. These, this is the picture of the kinds of relationships that, that thrive in a church. Uh, just as a footnote, I don't know if you saw this. It was in the news uh, a, few, a couple of weeks ago, but I just saw it this week. The, uh, the United Kingdom has created a new ministry cabinet for the prime minister called the Minister of Loneliness. There's an epidemic of loneliness in the United Kingdom. There's also an epidemic in America. And they, what's so fascinating about this is that it's not just about the elderly. It crosses all generations. And this Ministry of Loneliness was created before the pandemic. And they've just poured $12 million into this ministry now because they know they need it more than ever. I, I want to suggest to you that the church is that place. And we don't need $12 million to be friends with people. We just need to be their friends. And the church needs to invite people who are lonely to be a part of who we are and what we do. All right, the third phase is the equipping phase. And that is where Jesus sent his 12 on a short-term mission trip. This is also from the, the uh, uh, Gospel of Luke. And it says in chapter 9, And he called the 12 together, and he gave them power and authority over the demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, and don't have two tunics, and whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And whenever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed, and they went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So Jesus assigns his disciples their very first ministry task. I'll bet they were thrilled and terrified all at the same time. Doing something and serving the kingdom of God or serving the church will definitely move you out of your comfort zone. And these guys, I'm sure that they were really just excited and they said, come on, Philip, let's you and me go to Samaria. They took two steps and said, no, wait, let's not. That was kind of a scary thing. I, I am sure they were thrilled. I'm sure they had plenty of wonderful experiences. But what's going on in this phase is Jesus giving them a taste of gospel ministry by joining God's redemptive mission in the world. He wants to reconcile people to himself. And they are learning here as they went out two by two, they got a firsthand experience of what it was going to take to serve the gospel. And Jesus told them, the only thing you need to bring with you, now get this, you don't bring a bag of money, you don't bring, you don't even bring a suitcase, just go, because you have my authority with you. If you have my authority, things are going to happen, good things are going to take place. People will come to faith in me. So by this, Jesus is training them to risk letting go of things that they may feel make them safe and comfortable because he wants them to feel safe and comfortable in their reliance on his spirit and not on their abilities. Charles Spurgeon said in a very famous sermon about the necessity of the Holy Spirit 
It is not possible for us to promote the glory of God or to bless souls unless the Holy Spirit is with us and in us. Here's what he said. Let us beware of trusting our well-adjusted machineries of committees and schemes. Let us be suspicious of all reliance upon our own mental faculties and religious vigor. Let us be careful that we don't look too much to our leading preachers and evangelists. For if we put any of these in place of the divine spirit, we shall err most fatally. If the Holy Spirit is so mighty, let us do nothing without him. Let us begin no project, carry on no enterprise, and conclude no transaction without imploring his blessing. Now, it's good to make plans. It's good to have talents and skills. God gives us those things. But that's not all we need. We need the presence of the Spirit. Because of the Spirit's equipping in the church, no church leaders, no elders should ever bemoan what we don't have. No church leaders, no ministry leaders should ever say, you know, if I only had blank, we'd get better. Um, the equipping of the Spirit is ours just as much today as it was when Jesus gave it to his disciples then in Luke. It isn't about our money or the lack of it. It's about the empowerment of the Spirit working through us. One of my favorite reminders of this, I actually saw it up on a, on a, on a wall of a church in our city, and it said, not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. And there it is. There's everything you need to know about what it takes to carry on any kind of ministry whatsoever, no matter how large or small. Now, I am convinced that regardless of the size of a church, everything that a church needs Everything a church needs to fulfill the Great Commission and the Great Commandment is already present in that church. I've been in churches where there were 3,500 people, and, and we were able to do a lot of stuff. And I've been in churches as small as 25 people on a good Sunday, and we were still able to do a lot of good stuff. It isn't the size. It isn't the power of the church. It isn't the stuff that we have. It is the presence of the Spirit with us. That's what we're equipped for with ministry. Now, the final phase is the endurance phase or the training to endure. We'll see this in John chapter 15, verses 4 and 5. But I just want to say two things. Jesus said some remarkably um, uh, straightforward, convicting, and challenging things when he said about uh, following him as a disciple. One of the things he said was, unless you pick up your cross, you cannot be my disciple. Unless you renounce everything, you cannot be my disciple. Unless you endure to the end, you cannot be my disciple. That should, that should settle in us how serious the call to discipleship is, but also raise a question. How am I going to do that? How am I going to pick up a cross, right? That means self-denial. That means not getting my way. How am I going to renounce everything? At one point, Jesus, remember, he said, unless you hate your mother and your father and your brothers and everything, you cannot be my disciples. What in the world is he calling us to? And unless I endure to the end, how many people do you know? They start out really well. They're going really good. And then off the ramp they go. Endure to the end. You cannot be my disciples. How are we going to do that? Jesus tells us in John 15, verses 4 and 5. The whole paragraph, really, but I'll just read these two verses. Remain or abide in me as I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. 
I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is uh, that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can't endure to the end. Apart from me, you cannot pick up your cross. Apart from me, you cannot be my disciple. This is what Jesus is getting at. We are rooted in him. It is his power. As I was walking out last night, some, some uh, a friend of mine said, you know, that was really interesting. He said that, that, that vine thing, he says, you know, you've you got to be really careful about where your branch is attached to what vine. And I went, oh, that's a really good thought. I told him I would bring it up so that you know what he said. You know, you don't want to attach yourself to a vine that's false gospel, false teaching, corrupt, health and wealth. You don't want to attach yourself there because that's a false vine. So we remain. Jesus intended this final phase to be lifetime discipleship. However long we have from whenever we began, it's being a disciple all the way to the end. And the interesting thing about this particular phase is that it circles back around to all those things that Jesus taught and learning them again, learning them afresh, you know, committing, them to, uh, committing to them once again in, in fresh new ways, seeing the development because of all of that along the way. We continue to deepen our roots in the life of Christ and serve the way that he served. And as we do that, as we do that, joy in our lives deepens. Our spiritual affections for Jesus and our abilities all increase, and the Scripture becomes more firm, and we become progressively more like Jesus. As John said it, we decrease as Christ increases in us. Now, the big difference in this final phase is that we become disciple makers. We're disciples, disciples, disciple makers must be disciples, but we become the mentors to other believers who are along for the journey. We help them along the way. We wanna help them, in fact, become disciple makers themselves so that the whole, pro, the whole, the whole of the, the kingdom of God continues to increase. So we have these four phases, calling or recruiting, Teaching, learning how to live this new life in Jesus in a community of believers. Equipping, preparing people for service regardless of the cost. And then enduring, going deeper, staying with it all the way, finishing strong at the end. Now, what do we do here at Cornerstone? What, what goes on here? What, what can we offer people to plug into this kind of growth? Well, you'll see this today in the commons. There's uh, five tables that are set up, three against this wall, two against that wall, and they have uh, these opportunities for you to uh, get involved in discipleship ways. First of all, there is the 2020 life table. That's what we call our small groups. It's based on the verse in Acts 2020 that Paul taught in the temple and from house to house. So it's the house to house kind of ministry, the small group. And here you will see materials available that are going on right now, and you can sign up for them even now, the 2-7 series. It's called 2-7, but it means growing deeper in God, learning how to share the gospel, learning our testimony, learning how to, to be consistent in our study and our uh, devotional life in the Word of God, and, and, a, and a lot of other things that is just called the 2-7 series because it's based on Colossians 2-7, which talks about growing deeper in God. Uh, Scylla Marson also is starting a group um, 
uh, on the subject of fighting for joy when facing grief, depression, or disappointment. Um, I, I also mentioned that Greg Masati has a men's group on Monday nights. They're also working in the 2-7 series, so you can also see him about that. And then in the winter leading up to Easter, about the 10 weeks prior to um, uh, Palm Sunday, we're going to do, do another small group which will look at the book Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. Um, the, the publisher gave us 200 copies of that book to give away. So everybody who goes to the small group will get a copy of the book to read. And it's a marvelous book. It's a wonderful book. Secondly, there is the Cornerstone Institute that you've already heard about this morning when Darren's teaching starting tomorrow night. These are college-level courses. This isn't sitting around in a Bible study and saying, well, here's, here's what I think it means. No, this is college-level courses. There's, there's no homework. Don't be afraid. Then there's no tests. But we want to ramp up the... the uh, a standard a little bit, and take a look at, in this case, particular case, the person in the work of Christ. And in the winter, Darren will be teaching on the doctrine of humanity, how God has made us in his image, and uh, uh, how we fell into sin, and then, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get to the rescue from sin as well, eventually, as we work through all of these major doctrines of the church. And Lord willing, uh, Anita and I want to do a, um, a course for married couples, particularly helping married couples deal with conflicts that come up in their lives. That'll be next spring, uh, Lord willing, so pray. Um, also at the table, there's a bright table, B-R-I-T-E, you'll see it up there. This is, this is uh, taking the place of Awana on Wednesday nights, and Lauren says that it's really some of the best material that she's ever seen for ministering to elementary age uh, school children to make them resilient disciples in the Lord at that young age. And there is the youth ministry table where you can uh, see some people who are, are um, interested in coming alongside. Uh, parents of teens especially, um, you know, youth ministry used to be all about fun and games. We found out that didn't work. Let's train them. And so there is that opportunity as well. And finally, there's one more. We're calling it phase one, and it is ministry training. What we want to do is to train everybody who wants to serve in any ministry of the church, just the foundations. What does it take to serve? It's a five-week five course that we're going to have on Sunday mornings between services. The first people to go through it will be the elders, which starts in a few weeks, and then um, the staff will be next, and then uh, the elders will start teaching this for everybody who's involved in a ministry, just to get our feet on solid ground. This is what it means to serve. This is what Jesus expects of us. He expects us to be humble people. He expects us to know and understand how the gospel saves and continues to save believers all the way to the end and so on. So there's a number of, of very important lessons in there. Now, there's, you know, you, you would think, you know, it would be great if we could just have this systematic way of teaching discipleship. It would just be wonderful, you know, like you go to first grade and you learn, well, I'm, I'm aging, I'm showing my age now, you know, C, G, C spot run and all of that stuff. I'm, I'm sure they're into nuclear science now at first grade. I'm sure of it. Um, but but you, know, you know what I mean. Everything is fundamental, 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 building on the fundamentals all the way until you get to 12th grade and into college where you can actually start writing essays that make sense and reading books that are way beyond C-spot run. But the church isn't like that. The church isn't like that. All of us are in such different places when it comes to our following Jesus. And so we have to understand that that's true. So what we want to say is, you know, you know where you're at in your followership. You, you, you know how well you're doing. 
you know what you might need to improve. Or maybe you don't know, but you'd like to find out. Well, we're leaving that up to you. We're going to help you the best way that we can to plug into those areas that we have that might help you to continue to grow. Because what we want to see happen is that we fulfill the Great Commission. Make disciples who also make disciples. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are pilgrims as much as we are disciples in this world. We no longer belong to this world, even though we live in this world. But you have given us a new purpose and a new race to run, and it's called discipleship. So, Lord Jesus, we ask that you would help us to finish our race with unreserved submission to do your will and fulfill your purposes. Grant to us the necessary grace to increase our affections for you so that we might run this race with joy, the joy of pleasing you. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would trace the image of Christ on our souls, forming in us his very nature, and that you would give us the needed spiritual power to live gospel-centered lives every day, Help us to steward the small responsibilities that you place within our care every day, realizing that they have eternal impact, that they are given to us as a call to follow Jesus in everything, no matter how small. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.